Well, good morning, Providence. It's such a joy to be with you this morning. And uh, I'm going to swing this over like this. Uh, it is such a joy to be with you this morning. Uh, I feel so honored that Josh and, and uh, Gordon reached out and asked if I would uh, come this morning and, and, and be here this week to, to be able to minister to the Word. And for me, it was, it was an easy yes. Anytime you attach uh, getting to come to a, a Nebraska football game and, and uh, with getting to minister the Word and preach, I think you could probably attract any pastor or shepherd uh, from around the country to come and, and bring the Word uh, to you guys. It's been about um, 25 years about 25 years since I've been to the state of Nebraska. I remember when I was in high school, I came to a couple of uh, games, a couple of football games. In fact, I uh, grew up in Southern California, then I bounced around, was in my freshman year in Sacramento, and then my sophomore year of high school, I was living with my aunt and uncle at the time, and they moved to Sioux Falls because uh, my uncle felt a call to go into full-time ministry. Uh, there's a North American Baptist Seminary there in Sioux Falls, so he went and attended that school. And so I wasn't too far from Lincoln. And, and uh, so when I was in high school, came down for a couple of games and uh, just had a great experience. And it just, I, I, I was reminded yesterday that there are no fans in the world like the fans in Nebraska. And so uh, it, was, it was sweet to watch Brian and, and uh, be there with Kelly to be able to cheer on the Cornhuskers. It was a great day. Hey, a couple of highlights before I jump into the word this morning. A couple of highlights. I've been here since Wednesday. I flew in on Wednesday, and I just uh, loved my time with you folks in Ashland. Those of you here this morning from that great community, uh, being at FCA on Wednesday night, it just warmed my heart. It remember, reminded me of when I was in high school. Uh, I was playing sports and just thinking back to those years, the, the people who invested into my life as a teenager. And so I just want to encourage you folks that you're your labors are not in vain. Obviously, God is the one who first and foremost sees what we do, but um, I just remember just as a teenager myself playing sports and some of the folks who invested in my life, uh, th those seeds that are planted, they just don't go to a waste. And so uh, thank you for just your kind welcome to me and Friday morning getting to do FCA. Friday night, got to go to the Ashland football game. What an experience and uh, a great win for you guys. And then another highlight for me uh, this week was getting to go to uh, Ron Brown. Uh, as you guys know, one of the coaches for Nebraska, he um, led this Bible study on Friday. Is that right, Brian? It was on Friday afternoon, Thursday afternoon. Thanks, Brian. And uh, it was Thursday afternoon, and I was just blown away uh, by his message. Uh, in fact, I caught him afterwards. I just said, Coach Brown, and uh, you know, I, I had, I, I grew up playing sports and went through high school, middle school, high school, college, uh, played sports at Montana State. And then, and I don't know if I ever had one single coach all those years uh, who was a Christian, who was a believer. And so here was Coach Brown, a coach on the Nebraska staff, bringing the word and it had so much substance. He was preaching on abiding in Christ and my heart was just filled. In fact, at one point he said, Pastor John, do you have anything to add? And I was like, no, this is so good. And uh, I'm just here soaking this in, looking around like, guys, you don't realize what you have. Uh, what a treasure that this uh, state and that program has in Ron Brown. What a ministry he has to those young men. And I was thankful after the game yesterday. I just had a chance again to thank Ron for his ministry. It's just had a ripple effect, uh, even to Bozeman, Montana. Just uh, appreciate a man like that. Uh, it's a lonely field as a coach uh, when you walk with Christ and you take an uncompromising stance on the word of God. It's just a lonely field to, to be a coach in that position. So I'm so thankful uh, that the Lord has gifted that program with such a fine gentleman. Uh, our theme this morning is going to be overcoming the guilt 
of a sinful past. And so open your Bibles, if you would, and meet me at Psalm 32, if you would. Over to Psalm 32. And as you're turning there, I want to open our time by sharing with you a true story about a young 15-year-old track star by the name of Robert Garth. Robert grew up in a poor household in the city of Detroit. He was underprivileged, as you might say, but those circumstances didn't stop him from becoming one of the most decorated young athletes in the entire country. As one writer noted, his young body was built for speed. He could run like the wind. And that talent bought him a ticket to the Junior Olympic tryouts in the summer of 1968. Well, as the day drew near for the Junior Olympic trials, Robert sat before the television thinking of some ways he could make some quick cash for his upcoming trip. And unfortunately, the idea that came to mind wasn't a good one. In fact, it was one that would later torment him for many, many years. You see, the warehouse that Robert worked at uh, and done a few odd jobs in the past, there was a a boss that he had there, and his name was Joseph Moseri. And uh, he, he was a man who always paid him and always paid him in cash. And usually first thing in the morning, he was usually alone in the morning. And that got Robert thinking down a certain path. And you might imagine where this is headed. Well, early the next morning, Robert snuck into the warehouse and he waited behind a door for his boss to enter the building. And when Joseph Moseri came walking into the building, Robert struck him over the head with an object and knocked him to the ground and then pulled out a total of $67 from his pockets, and then he escaped and left town. Well, as the story unfolds, Robert went on, and he competed in the Junior Olympic trials, but what he didn't realize was the magnitude of the crime that he committed on that early morning. Because you see, the blow to the head, that when he knocked his boss to the, on the head, the blow to the head didn't just knock the man unconscious, it actually ended his life. And when Robert returned home and realized the nature of the crime that he had committed, his life plummeted and spiraled downward. Well, as the story goes, Robert went on to graduate from high school. He got married, had a child, but things were never the same. He eventually turned to alcohol to deal with all the guilt that weighed so heavily on his conscience. But as any situation where somebody looks to alcohol to solve life's problems, it only made matters worse. Well, over time, his marriage began to suffer. And only after three years of marriage, his wife packed up her belongings, took their daughter, and moved away. And the next several years of his life only grew worse and worse year after year after year. And that continued until one day, 15 years. Think about that. 15 years after he had committed that devastating crime, Robert decided to turn himself in and confess to what he had done. And you can only imagine the shock of the police department uh, just the, the, uh, by, by this confession. I mean, here was an unresolved 15-year-old cold case that no one had a clue as to whom was the guilty party. And here's a 30-year-old man that just walks in off the streets one day and confesses to it. Well, in the preceding days, Robert was convicted of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to prison. And while in prison, he was handed a copy of the Bible. And guess what happened? It changed his life. It was in God's word that he found some help for the enormous guilt that weighed on him for so many years. In fact, some years after that, Robert Garth made the following statement. He said, my time in prison was easy compared to the 15 years I lived with that crime in my mind. 
He said, nothing they could ever do to me, even incarcerating me for the rest of my life, could measure up to the imprisonment of my own guilt of the 15 years of hiding my sin. Robert was finally freed from the great burden of guilt, and the result was peace and a clear conscience and joy. Well, there's a man in Scripture who, who could identify very closely with the story that I just read. And the individual whom I, have in not, whom I have in mind is none other than David. David, as you, as you all know, is one of the most godly men in all of Scripture that we read about in Scripture. As you trace his story, you find that David was humble. He was courageous. He was sincere. He was faithful. And he was fiercely loyal. But if there's one thing that David is most known for and remembered by, especially from unbelievers, it is not those things. The things that he is most often remembered by is his adultery. And you know, friends, I think there's an important lesson in that, isn't there? Listen, it takes an entire lifetime to build a godly reputation and only one foolish decision to ruin it. David fell into grievous sin and the consequences were devastating. However, after having owned up to it and confessed to it, David experienced God's love and mercy and forgiveness like never before. And that's what he writes about here in the 32nd Psalm. So if you're in Psalm 32, I better turn there myself. Psalm 32. I'm going to go ahead and read the entire Psalm and then we'll kind of work our way back and then just sort of march through these verses slowly. Psalm 32. It says, it begins here in verse one, a mascal of David, a song of David. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Verse 7, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all of you who are upright in heart. Well, if you've ever read through the book of Psalms, then you know that uh, this particular book, there's such a wide spectrum of literary styles contained in this one book alone. For example, there are praise psalms. There are lament psalms, there are creation psalms, there are messianic psalms, there are thanksgiving psalms, there are imprecatory psalms, and so the list goes. And this particular psalm we just read, Psalm 32, it actually fits into the category of a confessional psalm. In fact, this psalm is one of seven confessional psalms in the entire book. And two of the seven that are most familiar to to most Christians are Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Uh, Those two are what you might call the confessional giants of the Psalms. 
And interestingly, both are closely related and that they both are connected to the Bathsheba episode recorded in 2 Samuel chapter 11. And here's how the three passages relate as far as the timeline goes. 2 Samuel 11 records the sin of David. Psalm 51 records the repentance of David. And Psalm 32 records the lessons that David learned while looking back on the entire situation. So does that help you out? Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 11 records the sin of David. Psalm 51, the repentance of David. And then Psalm 32, even though it's before 51, it's actually his summary of, of all the things that he had learned, some of the principles that he had learned, the valuable lessons he learned looking back over the entire situation. And so with that as background, let's dive into the text, beginning in verse 1, where it says, The song of David, Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, and whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord does not count iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. When David contemplated that his choices of sin and just how far his sin had taken him, he couldn't help but rejoice in God's mercy and forgiveness. You almost get the sense that David is overwhelmed by it and had a hard time fully expressing just how grateful to the Lord he was for his mercy and forgiveness. I mean, think about it. David, David could have just said, blessed is he whose transgressions is forgiven, and just left it at that. However, instead of using only one term to describe God's forgiveness, he piles on three terms to highlight it and to elaborate on it and to celebrate it. He used the term forgiven and covered and counts no iniquity. Each of those terms or phrases, though describing the same idea or concept, each of them has a unique meaning. For example, the Hebrew word translated forgiven literally means to be lifted or to be carried away. And of course, the picture that comes to mind is Psalm 103, verse 12, where the psalmist said, as far as the east is from the west, so far as the Lord removed our transgressions from us. The next term David used to describe the Lord's forgiveness is covered. Uh, that could also be translated to hide or to conceal. You see, when we confess a sin to the Lord, the Lord hides our sin or he throws a blanket over our sin and he buries the offense as quickly as possible. Isn't that a neat image to think about how the Lord forgives us? He buries it. He lifts it and he removes it or he buries it. The third statement David uses to highlight God's forgiveness is the phrase, counts no iniquity. Some translations read, does not impute iniquity. And the idea behind that phrase is that once we confess our sin to the Lord, he doesn't continue to hold it against us. He doesn't continue to bring it up and say, well, hey, don't you remember when you did such and such? Or don't you remember back in the day when you said some really bad things about this person or, or reacted in that way? No, the Lord doesn't do that. Instead, we're told in his word that once we repent and humbly seek the Lord's forgiveness, he graciously moves past it. In fact, in Isaiah 43, 25, the Lord himself said, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions, and I will not remember your sins. Friends, aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful for that truth? That when we confess our sin to the Lord, he doesn't continue to dwell on it or remind us of it or dig it back up and hold it against us in some way or another. Instead, he buries it. He hides it, he lifts it, and he moves it away. No wonder David opens this psalm with the word blessed. Blessed. 
David knew full well what it was like to be a guilty sinner, and he knew firsthand how good it is to truly be forgiven. You know, before we move on, it's interesting to me to sort of compare. Sometimes I enjoy doing this when you're studying a book, or especially like the Psalms, there's so much variety, but, but sometimes it's neat to just kind of compare, you know, one Psalm with another, and, and, uh, or up against the backdrop of another, but but uh, one psalm I found that was interesting, just to compare this psalm to, uh, is Psalm chapter 1. And uh, Psalm chapter 1, in fact, just hold your place here. Turn back, if you would, to Psalm 1. It's interesting to me that this psalm opens very similar, with almost the exact word, <laughs> blessed, or blessed, right here in chapter 1 of verse 1. Notice uh, how this psalm opens up. Psalm chapter 1, verse 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Here the psalm opens with the word blessed, similar to Psalm 32. And then it elaborates on the type of life or choices that brings true blessing in life. It's someone who doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly or, or stand in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful, but rather it's somebody who delights in the word of God to the point that it impacts his entire life. Friends, that is the path of true blessing. That is the, the path of true joy and happiness. And yet, listen closely to this, and yet, if one has failed to do this, Heed the counsel of Psalm 1 and has fallen into sin. Psalm 32 shows us another way to be blessed in life. And that is to make full confession of our sin and to turn back to the ways of the Lord. And David is a great illustration of that truth. Let's go back to Psalm 32. Back to Psalm 32, God restored David to a point where he was able to experience joy again in a life, and joy that probably in a way that he never thought he would ever experience again in his life. He probably thought that would never happen, especially, listen, especially given the scenario he describes in the following verses. Back at Psalm 32, look at verse 3. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. He said, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Here in these verses, David looks back and recalls the turmoil and the spiritual distress he experienced when his sin was left unconfessed. When David sinned with Bathsheba, we know that many months had passed before he owned up to it and sought the Lord's forgiveness. In fact, Scripture records that Bathsheba went through her entire pregnancy and gave birth to a son before Nathan came to confront David about his sin. And listen, during those months of disobedience, David tells us that his life was a complete mess. It was a complete wreck. In fact, look at verse 3 again. He says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. David tells us that when he chose to hold on to his sin for all of those months, the weight of his sin, it began to affect him physically. The, the lack of peace from his unconfessed sin coupled with his double life it literally made him sick. In verse 4, he says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. You know, the Hebrew phrase at the end of this verse, verse 4, it says, 
my strength was dried up as the heat of summer. In the, in the original language, the original Hebrew, it's a lot more uh, picture, picturesque than that, a little bit more vivid than that. that. That Hebrew phrase is literally translated, my juices were sapped as in the drought of summer. The weight of David's sin, it just took a major toll on his life, both physically and emotionally. It, it totally sapped him of both his, his physical strength and his inner strength. And friends, lest you think that was an awful thing that occurred in David's life or that David had to go through, understand this, it was actually the best thing that could have ever happened to him. You say, well, what do you mean? Well, let me explain it this way. Guilt in our spiritual lives works a lot like pain with our physical bodies. You see, when our bodies experience pain as a result of sickness or some kind of injury, though the experience is uncomfortable, it drives us to find the solution to our problem. And in a similar way, in a similar way, guilt, though it's uncomfortable, it's the best thing that we can experience as a result of our sin because it drives us to correct the real issue when we might otherwise ignore it. Listen, guilt is God's gift to the unrepentant sinner because it aims to draw the person back into sweet fellowship with himself. And that, of course, is what David wanted, or God wanted more for David than anything uh, to experience. He wanted David to feel the weight of his sin so that he would humble himself and repent and be restored to the Lord. And by God's grace, that is exactly what happened and resulted in David's situation. Now, before we move on to the text, I think it's important that we pause uh, to really contemplate the effects that David's sin had in his life. I mean, think about it. One passing moment of pleasure led to months and months and months of misery in his life. When David committed the horrific act that he did with Bathsheba and then, of course, subsequently killed her husband, Uriah, I'm sure he didn't envision all of the turmoil and all of the guilt and all of the anguish that his sin would eventually produce. But friends, that's exactly how sin works. Sin is so deceitful. And the reason it's so deceitful, listen, is that it promises joy and it promises pleasure and it promises satisfaction, all the while hiding the devastating consequences that are sure to follow down the road. Listen, sin, though it may look satisfying in the moment, it always pays awful dividends. And we should never forget that. David's sin produced awful consequences in his life. However, David didn't allow those consequences to prevent him from turning back to the Lord. In fact, look at verse 5. Verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. And so after months and months of holding on to his sin, David eventually broke. We read about the story back in 1 Samuel, or I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 12. So turn, hold your place here and turn back with me, if you would, to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And we can read about the account there where Nathan comes, the prophet Nathan comes and confronts David for his sin. And 2 Samuel chapter 12 and I'll read this passage beginning in verse 1. And it says this. It says, And the Lord sent Nathan to David. And he came to him, and he said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. 
And the rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children, and it used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guests who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. And David's anger, it's almost like his anger interrupts the conversation here. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves, deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, verse 7, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would have added to you a lot more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all of Israel and before the sun. And David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Friends, the first thing that stands out to me, the first thing that stands out to me in David's confession is that he didn't blame anyone else but himself. When Nathan confronted him, David didn't try to hide his sin or excuse his sin or rationalize it or psychologize it in any way. He didn't point the finger at Bathsheba and say, well, well, Nathan, it was her fault. She, she bathed in, in full view where I could see her. Uh, he didn't blame his wife's fault. He didn't say, listen, if she would have, you know, met my, satisfied all of my needs in the marriage for intimacy, then I wouldn't have looked elsewhere. He, he didn't blame the Lord. He didn't say, listen, God, God was the one who put me here. I, I, I should have been out on the field. Or I should, if I was busy doing something else, but no, uh, David didn't blame his wife. He didn't blame Bathsheba. He didn't blame the Lord. And said, David said, it was me. It was me. I, I, I'm, I'm the guilty party. I, I'm the one who has sinned against the Lord. Friends, can I just say that's the stuff of true, genuine repentance. Listen, when you take full ownership over your sin and you start talking about it in the first person, I did it. I was wrong. It was all me. Friends, that's a good sign that you're on the path to true repentance, true brokenness, and true repentance. And then a second thing I'll just say, just in reading this account that stood out to me is in David's response, is that he didn't become defensive when Nathan pointed out his sin. He didn't say, well, Nathan, who are you to talk to me about this? Or, or who, who are you to point out all this wrong in my life? I mean, after all, you're not so perfect. You don't have your life all together. Unfortunately, those kinds of scenarios aren't all that uncommon when addressing a person's sin. However, David didn't respond that way. David committed two horrifying sins, but when he was confronted with them, he humbled himself and he broke. Now back to Psalm 32. 
back to Psalm 32. One of the questions, it might be on your heart this morning, but one of the questions people often ask is, how could David have been a man? Let me say it this way. How could David have been a man after God's own heart if he committed such horrible sin? Have you, have you ever thought about that before? You know, Scripture refers to David as a man after God's own heart. And so looking at David's life, how, how could he have been a man after God's own heart and committed such horrible sin? Uh, how could David be looked to as such a godly man after committing the sin that he did, as recorded in 2 Samuel? And I believe the answer is this. I believe the answer has to do with his response to it. You see, when David sinned, he modeled true biblical repentance. I mean, just stop and think about all the ways that David handled his sin and responded to it with integrity. Here's just a brief list. I just started jotting down some, uh, all the ways in my mind that David stood out in the way that he uh, handled his sin or responded to his sin. The first is this. Number one is that David served as an example of taking personal ownership over his sin. We just covered this. Again, D David, when he was confronted with his sin, he, he took full ownership of it. He didn't blame shift. He didn't, uh, you know, try to blame somebody else for it or anything like that. No, he, he talked about sin in the first person. I did it. I was wrong. Uh, he called out to God, cried out to God for mercy uh, for his sin. And so we see that in the way he responded to it. Uh, number two, David served as an example of true brokenness and true repentance. In other words, David wasn't just sorry that he got caught. Uh, he wasn't just sorry because of the consequences he would go on to experience. His sorrow, rather, produced a genuine repentance that led to true lasting change in his life. Third, I'll add this, David served as an example of accepting the consequences of his sin without becoming bitter or angry at God. In fact, you can read about this on your own in Psalm 51, but it's just amazing to me as David cries out to God, begs God for mercy, there's no, there's no complaint about the severity of God's punishment. His greatest outrage was directed toward his own sin and not the Lord's consequences. David knew full well that he was guilty and he knew he deserved whatever consequences the Lord saw fit to bring against him. And so much so, so that there's an interesting phrase that at the end of, in Psalm 51 in verse 4, where he basically goes out of his way to say that if and when God chose to punishment, punish him for his sins, uh, David wanted everyone to know that he was perfectly just for doing so. In other words, David wanted to see God as blameless. He didn't want people to look at his life and say, wow, what has happened to David? God is so unfair. No, he went basically on public record and said, I just want you to know, as he's writing this psalm in Psalm 51, that if God chooses to afflict punishment on me, he's perfectly justified, uh, perfectly justified for doing so. Friends, talk about humility. That, that kind of attitude is so rare to find today when people are guilty of sin. A number, another uh, example of the way that David modeled true repentance, number four, is that he served as an example of begging for God's mercy instead of expecting it. You know, some people today, maybe you've run into this before, but some people today have such a, a cavalier view of their sin. They think it's their job to do the sinning and God's job to do the forgiving. It's like the statement, grace, grace, what a blessed condition. I can sin all I want and still be forgiven. You know, some people have that cavalier attitude towards sin, but that wasn't David's attitude. Listen, he sought God's mercy and he begged for it. He didn't demand it. 
he didn't expect it. And then fifth, this was just another thing I, as I was studying this passage, just jotted down as an example of David's humility and brokenness and repentance is that David served as an example that it's never too late to start doing the right thing. It's never too late. You know, as I think about David's life, I think of Proverbs 24, 16, which says, for though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. Isn't that interesting? It doesn't say in Proverbs 24, 16, though a righteous man never falls. It says, though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises again. In other words, sometimes the only difference between a righteous man and an unrighteous man in response to sin is that a righteous man learns to get back on his feet and continue to walk with the Lord. And that's what we see in David. David was knocked down by his sin, but he didn't stay down. By God's grace, he slowly got back up on his feet and began to focus on the life that was ahead of him and not behind him. But that doesn't mean he didn't learn some valuable lessons from his past. Look at verse six. He says, therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Let's stop here for a moment. Here in the first half of verse six, David basically is looking back on his life and the situations that, that, that are described in verses one through five. And, and he basically draws a principle or an inference from what he discussed in those previous verses. He basically says this, in light of my experience and in light of all the lessons that I have learned regarding sin and guilt and the blessings of forgiveness, David says this, be quick to run to the Lord. In other words, David tells us, don't, don't put off confession. Don't, don't pretend. If, you, if you've sinned against the Lord, don't, don't pretend the situation didn't happen. Don't, don't delay in making things right. Confess your sin right away and be quick to be restored to the Lord. You know, if there's one lesson you and I can learn from David's experience, it's this. Undealt with sin only produces guilt and misery, while owning up to it can bring about great peace and joy. Friends, which would you rather have? Which would you rather have? He says in verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him or they shall not come near to him. What did David mean by that last statement in verse six? Surely in a rush of great waters, they shall not come near to him. Well, it seems that David was using some imagery to illustrate what it's like when we don't admit our sin right away. It's like we're opening up the floodgates and exposing our lives. When we don't do that, when we don't address sin right away, it's almost like we're opening up the floodgates and exposing our lives to more heartache, to more problems, to more consequences, to more pain. And that's exactly what happened to David, wasn't it? Initially, he chose to ignore his sin and it only made matters worse. However, if we turn to the Lord right away with a humble, contrite heart, we will be rescued from any additional unnecessary consequences that would otherwise rush like a mighty wave into our lives. I think that's what David is saying here in verse six. In verse seven, he says, you are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble and you surround me with shouts of deliverance. When David turned to the Lord for restoration and forgiveness, he found the Lord to be a refuge and a hiding place in the midst of his troubles. And what a contrast, isn't it? 
What a contrast that is to what David expressed earlier in the text. You know, Charles Spurgeon once made this observation on this very verse here. He said this, observe that the same man who in the fourth verse was oppressed by the presence of God, here in this verse, finds shelter in his presence. And then he writes this, see what honest confession and full forgiveness will do for the child of God. Isn't that an interesting contrast? Earlier, as David talked about holding on to his sin, he was talked about being oppressed by the presence of God. And here, we see that David was comforted by the presence of God. And as Spurgeon pointed out, see what honest confession and full forgiveness will do for the child of God. Well, in the next section, David puts on his, sort of his professor hat, as, and he goes into sort of full instruction mode as he exhorts his listeners to learn from his mistakes. Look at verse 8. He says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go, and I will counsel you with my eye upon you. David says, pay attention to what I have to say because what I'm about to tell you is extremely important. You want to live life wisely? Uh, you want to learn from the mistakes that I've made in my life? Then you better lean forward in your chair and pay close attention to what I'm about to say. Verse 9, he says, Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. What is David saying here? Well, what David is saying here is this. Don't be stubborn when it comes to your sin. Don't be like a horse or a mule, which needs to be pushed and prodded to move in the direction that it's supposed to go. No, be the kind of person who deals humbly with his sin right away, rather than waiting for someone else to have to address it in your life. Take the initiative. You know, often that's really, to me, often the evidence of true brokenness and true repentance, just somebody who, who's willing to do whatever it takes to make their life right with the Lord or, or do whatever it takes to make it right with somebody else. It's almost like you don't even have to tell them what to do. Somebody that you have to tell what to do and everything to do to make things right with the Lord and, and with other people. It's almost like, is there really a heart of brokenness? Is there really, if, if I have to tell you everything that you have to, every step that you have to take, and, and there's just this sort of heels in the ground, like, do I have to do that? Do I, do I really have to go you know, have this conversation. And no, that's not the stuff of true repentance. True repentance takes initiative and is willing to see all the things that need to be made right and is willing to take the steps without being told to do that, being forced to do that. Verse 10, he continues, David, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Here, David tells us that God always reserves his mercy to those who trust in him and follow in his ways. To, to be more specific, God is merciful to the one who's truly broken over his sin. He's merciful to the one who, who takes full responsibility for his actions. He is merciful to the one who is humble and broken and concerned about the Lord's reputation. And he's merciful to the one who expresses a willingness to do whatever is necessary to make things right. As it says in James chapter 4, verse 10, God resists the proud, but he gives grace and mercy to the humble. In verse 11, he says, And be glad in the Lord, and rejoice, O righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. And I would just say this, friends, the only way 
The only way that a person can be glad in the Lord and shout with songs of joy is if there are no issues and no barriers in his or her relationship with the Lord. And so how about you, friends? How about you? Is there some sin in your life that you've been holding on to? Is there any sin in your life that is creating a barrier or a breach between you and the Lord Jesus Christ? If so, the message that comes through loudly in this text is don't put it off. Don't ignore it. Don't brush it under the rug or, or pretend the issue doesn't exist. Instead, you need to listen to David. You need to listen to the counsel of Psalm 32 and repent of it and turn to the Lord. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I want to give you just a moment or two just to uh, just do some self-evaluation. I know how busy life is and we go from one thing to the next and I know how church can be. You're running out the door and you come here in the Sunday morning context and, and sometimes we just, we're so busy, we're so quick to go from one thing to the next that we just don't always pause or take the time to pause and evaluate our own lives, evaluate our own hearts before the Lord. And so I just want to ask you this morning as you bow your head and you close your eyes, I want to give you a moment just to evaluate your own life and to think about if there are any issues right now in your life that, that have created a barrier or a breach between you and the Lord. And if there is, I just want to encourage you to take the time to, to deal with that before the Lord. In, in Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen, it says, he who conceals his sin does not prof, prosper, but whoever confesses it and forsakes it and finds mercy. In 1 John 1, 9, it says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if there are any issues, any, any barriers between you and the Lord, maybe it's, not, maybe it's not to the extent of David's sin, but maybe, you know, maybe it's you know, a conflict. Maybe the way you handled a conflict earlier this week and as you're thinking about, yeah, just this last week, you think, I, I just didn't handle that way or that well. Or, or maybe you're, you're thinking about a relationship. Maybe you're holding on to some bitterness this morning and uh, maybe you've been hurt by somebody or disappointed and you're just holding on, whatever it is. I just want to encourage you to take a few moments and just block out any distractions, confess it to the Lord, bring it to the Lord, and know that God is he's far more eager to forgive the sinner than we are oftentimes willing to ask for it. And child of God, if you're here this morning and if maybe there's not an issue, maybe you've, you're keeping short accounts of the Lord and maybe just in the next minute or two, you can just thank the Lord for his mercy and his forgiveness to bring you to where you're at today. I know for me, I, I just... I'm often amazed that of all the people in the world uh, that the Lord would show his kindness to me. The Lord would show his grace to me. And so maybe it would be just a time here for a minute or two just for you to thank the Lord for your salvation, that, from what he redeemed you from and how he's changed your life and made you to the person that you are today. Maybe take a moment or two and just pause and, and thank the Lord for his grace and, and mercy in your life. Father, this passage in Psalm 32, it is so applicable. It is so practical. It's amazing that this passage was written so many years ago, hundreds and hundreds of years ago. It's almost, it's almost as if it was written yesterday. And Father, as we consider this psalm this morning, we just want to pause and, and thank you for your mercy and for your love and your, and your kindness 
and your grace. Because like David, even though we may not have sinned in the way that he sinned, or or maybe not to the degree that he sinned, all of us are sinners in this room. All all of us knows what it's like to, to feel guilt because of our sin. And for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, all of us know exactly what it is like to experience the sweetness of your forgiveness. And fathers, I think about a text like this, I can't help but think about Romans 5, where, where the Apostle Paul said, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded so much more. And so, Father, this morning, as we've considered the psalm, we just want to thank you for that truth. As we've seen it and witnessed it played out in the life of David in this psalm, But I'm sure if all of us were honest here this morning, we could say we've also seen it play out in our lives too. And Father, I pray for anybody here this morning who doesn't know Christ, doesn't have a relationship with you, uh, that you would impress upon that individual, that man, that woman, that young person, their sin and their need for forgiveness, their need for a savior. Father, we thank you that you've made the provision for sin for us and that you've made a way for salvation through the death of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, we pause. We want to give you thanks for those truths and those realities that we've contemplated here in this powerful psalm. And as we walk away this morning, may we not just be hearers of the word. May we be faithful to practice it and to do it, not not for our sakes, but ultimately for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.